it's good to be with you. Um, we've, since the year started, we've, we've been in a series called Reset. Uh, and, and, and through this series, we've been taking a good hard look at the earliest days of the church, the earliest days of our common Christian heritage, looking at the lives of our first spiritual fathers and mothers and seeing how we can learn about uh, how we should live today, like what we can do in light of what they did. So earlier this week, as I was thinking about the sermon and preparing for it, I just began to reflect on the growth of the church in general and how the spread of Christianity has shaped and affected cultures and civilizations. You know, I think as, as evangelicals, we very much think about the gospel in terms of individual conversion, individual personal relationship with Jesus, and that's certainly true. But the gospel has great impacts on cultures and civilizations, and we've seen that particularly being Westerners, people who live in the Western world. The Western world, Western civilization, was shaped not primarily by the Greeks or the Romans, but by Christ, by the church, by the scriptures. Uh, where Christianity goes, society flourishes. I mean, we've seen this in, 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 in the history of the church. The Christianity is what led to the abolition of slavery. Christianity is what paved the way for equal rights for women. Christianity is what paved the way for a general societal concern for the poor, oppressed, and marginalized. If, if, if you look around and when you see, now this isn't always played out in the most in, in, in the best way, but there is a general consensus in our civilization, right? That we should care for the poor, that we should care for the oppressed, that we shouldn't, that we shouldn't beat down people who are already victims. Do you know where that idea came from? Christianity. The Greeks and Romans didn't do that. Nearly every value and virtue, uh, the standard of morality that we all agree upon here in the West was given to us by the church, by Christ, by God's word. And because of that, our society has been imperfect, but has largely flourished. Where Christianity goes, society gets better. Now, the converse is also true. When Christianity is rejected, when Christ is rejected, society gets worse. People suffer. I believe it was G.K. Chesterton who said, in freeing ourselves from Christianity... We have only freed ourselves from freedom. When Christianity is rejected, the blessings of Christianity begin to fade. After all, you don't get to keep the kingdom when you reject the king. Being a Christian who lives by a biblical conscience is becoming increasingly more difficult in the global West, leading not only to difficulty for Christians, but social and societal decay as a whole. Many of the things that our ruling class or intelligentsia class believe will save us are actually the things that are killing us. And I could give you story after story of what I've seen living in Belgium. When I talk about this, this sort of stuff, I think sometimes people can, can tell me I'm being a bit of an alarmist. But I'm... I promise you, I've been to our future. I know that we're insulated here in the evangelical South. But these days are numbered. Barring a move from the Lord, there are difficult days ahead. Being a Christian is going to cost your children much more than it costs you. 
Again, I can tell you what's happening in Belgium. During my time in Belgium, the EU decided they didn't want any more missionaries. They weren't going to tolerate any more missionaries coming, so they, ref- they now refuse to give out missionary visas. Which means that if you're a church and you want to send a missionary to Belgium, you better have a way to employ that person with a Belgian organization because they won't give you a visa if you're living off like monetary support from back home. They don't want you. I have church planting friends in Brussels or in Belgium, in other parts in the north of Belgium, telling me it's becoming increasingly hard to get their permits renewed, to get their licenses renewed, to get their visas renewed because they're teaching biblical sexual ethics. Speaking of sexual ethics, I can give you stories from Finland, the UK, Scotland, Canada, and West Lafayette, Indiana, in the United States, where legislatures are attempting to pass or have passed legislation that would ban pastors, parents, parents, friends, counselors, from giving any sort of help to someone who wants to move away from sexual desires that the Bible calls sinful. In Canada right now, it would be dangerous for a pastor if a congregant came to him and said, I'm having homosexual feelings and I, I, I want to pray that, that, that God would free me, that I, could live, that, that I could not live this way. If you help that person, you could be prosecuted, fines, prosecuted, imprisonment. This isn't Jordan being an alarmist. I'm reporting the news. Now, of course, this bill trying to be passed and this law being uh, attempting to be passed in West Lafayette, Indiana will be struck down because it's unconstitutional. But still, did you think you'd ever see a law like that in the United States of America? Did you ever think you'd see things like this in the liberal free West? Parents in some part of our country are starting to discover that the sex education curriculum their children have been taking in public schools is filled with homoerotic or pedophilic images. Amongst the intelligentsia class, there's a push to rebrand pedophilia as minor attraction, minor attracted person. And really what this is is an attempt to normalize and soften pedophilia. And of course, I could go on. We've, we've talked about this stuff before. We've, you've, you've heard us mention all sorts of things, but maybe the cherry on top of our discussion today could be that whenever you update your iPhone again next, when you're scrolling through your emojis, you'll find a pregnant man. When I saw the news report talking about this new uh, emoji thing. I don't really care about emojis, by the way, but it was interesting that it said uh, pregnant men and pregnant persons. Who's missing from that? Who's missing from that statement? Women. Yeah, the people trying to liberate you are erasing you. Why do I say all this? I want us to remember that our world is broken and our world needs redemption. And we could sit in this room, we could go to our groups, and we could lament about how bad it is out there, how dark it is out in the world, how much all these things, we could do, or we could take a page out of the handbook of the early church and confront with love and truth the brokenness of this world with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our world needs Christians who refuse to stick their heads in the sand or hold up in their churches in some kind of holy huddle. Our world needs spiritual awakening because at its root, the problems in our society, which you all know, there's a malaise across our land now. We all know that things are not as they should be. But the root of our problem isn't racism 
It isn't disease. It isn't sexual perversion. It isn't liberal politicians. It isn't QAnon conspiracy theorists. It's not the commies. It's not Trump. The problem at its core is sin. The problem is that we come into this world not born perfect, not born pure, not born innocent, but born with hearts with a disposition toward rebellion against our creator, hearts that naturally incline themselves toward discord, chaos, corruption. This is how all of us come into the world. And the solution to that is not some sort of dream of endless societal progress, not some act that Congress can pass, not a a list of resolutions from the UN, The solution to this problem is exclusively Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And like the early church, we followers of Jesus today have a duty, a joyful duty to proclaim the Lordship of Jesus Christ over all things and call all the world to submit to him and put their faith in him as Lord. We don't need a new strategy. We need an old model. You've heard us say before, the way forward is back. The first century church was was birthed into a world that is much worse than ours, much more corrupt. Yet they didn't flounder. They flourished. They didn't just survive They thrived, facing opposition that would make even the strongest among us tremble. We need to see how they did it and then apply that to every part of what we're doing today. We've seen some of these things already in this series. We talked about how they had the indwelling manifest power of the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that we have. Isn't that an amazing thing, by the way, Christian, that you have the exact same Holy Spirit in you that these Christians 2,000 years ago had in them? Isn't that amazing? They had a devotion to the scriptures. They were relentless in their prayer. They had a commitment to gathering together in community. Well, today, we're gonna look at something else, something that puts, put the church and puts our church on the offense, the loving offense, and that is evangelism. Evangelism. The early church changed the world, or in the words of Acts chapter 17, they turned the world upside down by proclaiming the gospel. They proclaimed Christ to family, friends, politicians, enemies. No one was off limits. This is what the Lord told them and us to do before he ascended to the right hand of the Father. Listen again to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where the Lord Jesus says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So I want to break down kind of three ways, that three things that we can see from the early church and how they shared the gospel, how they proclaimed the gospel, I should say. They proclaimed it boldly, simply, and continually. They proclaimed the gospel boldly, simply, and continually. Now, little disclaimer up front. If you've been around LifePoint for any number of, probably even months, you've heard live sent, you've heard message after message pushing us. We have to take the gospel out. We have to take, we have to share the gospel. All, all these sorts of things. I've been at LifePoint for over 20 years. 
If I were in the congregation and R.C. were up here preaching today, my temptation would be like, yeah, yeah, I got it. I've heard this sermon a million times. I I know what you're going to say. The reason that we keep talking about this is because as important as this is, as much of of an emphasis that we put on this, as much of a value as we have at LifePoint on living, sending missionaries both locally and globally, this is something we all neglect to do. This is something we have to harp on until the Lord Jesus returns. So bear with me today as we hear some familiar things. And I pray that through this, the Holy Spirit would capture our hearts with conviction as we ponder what God's word says. And that we would be emboldened to join in with the efforts of our Christian ancestors in proclaiming the lordship of Jesus Christ in all the world. So, the first thing I want us to see, the early church proclaimed the gospel boldly. Evangelism should not be some sheepish, tail tucked between your legs attempt to maybe, if you want to, if you feel like it, please maybe consider making Jesus Lord of your life. That's not what evangelism should be. Evangelism is the proclamation of the good news that Jesus Christ is king and ruler of all things and that he invites all people to come to him and receive forgiveness and remission of all their sins. That Jesus Christ alone is the only way for sinful people to be reconciled unto God, our creator. That he would cast out none who come to him. It's proclamation of what Christ did and who he is. This means evangelism is meant to be done with confidence. Evangelism is meant to be done with confidence. The gospel, listen, I I labored over this, this point with my people in Belgium. From the pulpit for three years, over and over, The gospel is not a set of deeply held Christian opinions. It's not a set of deeply held Christian truths, Christian beliefs. The gospel is the absolute, final, authoritative truth for all people at all times, in all places. It is the message of the absolute certain lordship of Jesus Christ over all things that exist. And this news can be proclaimed with boldness because it is absolutely true. This is not our worldview amongst uh, amongst other worldviews that are equal in their value. You have two options in how you look at the world. There are two options. Submission to Christ, the king and creator and ruler of all, or absurdity. There's nothing else. And it's very important for us to know in a pluralistic age and in the pluralistic society that we live in, there is one truth. There is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. This is absolutely true. And without the proclamation of this message, there is no redemption for sinners. Giving money to charities and ministries is great, and you should do that. Baking cookies for the new neighbor is great, and I hope that you do that. Meeting people's needs is great. 
Inviting people to church is great. But these things are not the gospel. And that's not what evangelism is. Inviting your friend to church is not evangelism. It's bringing them here and hoping that I do it for you. Bringing your friend to church is awesome, and I hope you do it. It's a great thing to do while you are also sharing the gospel message with them. I want to help you. I want to fortify what you're already doing. These things alone are not the gospel as good as they are and as necessary as they are. But they alone are not what the church exists to do. I remember in Brussels, there was a ministry that our church served with. It was before my family got there. Um, We and several other churches would serve with them. And this ministry, if you can call them a ministry, they were, they were big on like service projects. All they wanted to do was like different service projects throughout the city. And so our people would go serve and then people would, our people would come back to me. They'd say, Jordan, like, I remember one lady who was in charge of our like local missions at our church. She said, you know, as I was preparing, I think maybe they were doing food or some baskets or something. As I was preparing, I had just some music, like some, like a worship song playing from my phone. And the ministry leader came and told me to turn it off. They were like, hey, listen, we don't want to be too in your face with people. We don't want to be, we got to be subtle in this thing. We don't want to be too upfront about being, about Christianity. We don't want to be too in your face. We want to scare people off. I thought, well, no, that, 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 that's weird. Other people come back and say, yeah, we, we, we were told in the training before we went out that we weren't allowed to actually share the gospel with anyone, that we just wanted to meet their needs. And then hopefully maybe they'd ask, they'd ask us a question or something, but we couldn't actually share the gospel with them. Well, after a few times of hearing this, I said, all right, that's enough. We're not going to serve with this ministry anymore. I'm not going to waste our manpower, our time, our energy, our money on a ministry that's just wanting to hand out sandwiches on the sidewalk without sharing the gospel. We don't exist here, whether it be in Belgium or Bangkok or Smyrna, to do anything other than share the gospel. And if handing out sandwiches on the sidewalk helps us share the gospel, then let's, that's great. I'll hand out sandwiches all day. But if there's no gospel, then I have no interest in doing it. So we're going to put our efforts into ministries where we can meet people's needs and give them the gospel because that's the greatest need that they have. The gospel is meant to be proclaimed boldly. Think about the scene that we see in Acts chapter 2. Peter stands up before a crowd of people and he doesn't give them some like polished TED talk. He boldly proclaims the truth of the gospel. Look at Acts chapter 2 verse 38 and 40, through 41. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Look at another example in Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. And as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed 
And the number of men came to about 5,000. The apostles preached even when the authorities told them not to. The early church preached even when the authorities told them not to. I wonder if we have that spirit in our 21st century American evangelical churches. I wonder. Because I have a feeling that many modern-day evangelicals, had they lived in the time of the ancient church, would scold Peter and Paul. Tell them to stop being such troublemakers. Just love your neighbor and don't make a scene. If people get upset with you, then you must be doing something wrong. You must not be loving enough. I'm not advocating for anyone to go out and be a jerk for Jesus. That's foolishness and sinful. But remember, there was only one man who perfectly contextualized the gospel, perfectly delivered it with the absolute best balance of truth and love that has ever been in a gospel presentation. And he was crucified. What then of us? Thank God that the attitude that many of us have was not the attitude of the early church. They were willing to be troublemakers for the gospel. That's probably why they were so much more effective than we can be. Boldness in gospel sharing was, is rooted in a truth that the early church knew well and one that I, I, I fear many in the modern evangelical church have lost. And it is the truth of the absolute lordship of Jesus Christ. When we talk about Jesus being king of kings and lord of lords, that doesn't mean he's just the best king. He's just the best of all the lords. It means he is king over all kings. He is lord over all lords. Paul tells us that God the Father placed all things under his feet. All things, everything. Abraham Kuyper, the great Dutch theologian, said, there is not one square inch on plan- in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ does not cry, mine. It all belongs to Jesus. Everything, every home in your neighborhood is under the lordship of Jesus Christ. You are under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Everyone you know is, the place where you work is, our country, every congress, every president, every king. Everything has been placed under the feet of King Jesus and he rules over all things. And that reality gives fuel and fire to evangelistic efforts. I cannot imagine being a missionary if I was not absolutely convinced of the lordship of Jesus Christ over everything. There is no secular domain and spiritual domain. Everything in this world belongs to Jesus. He is Lord over all things. Whether, whether he's acknowledged as, as Lord or not, it makes no difference. He's Lord over the law. He's Lord over the police. He's Lord over every institution. He's Lord over every person. And as Christ's people, part of proclaiming the gospel is seeking to bring all of life under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. This is why I resent the phrase, make Jesus Lord of your life. Maybe you've heard that phrase. I resent that phrase so much. Would you like to make Jesus Lord of your life? That's preposterous. You can't make Jesus Lord of your life any any more than you can make the earth orbit the sun. He is Lord of your life. Coming to Christ is coming to terms with reality, not creating something new. Why should your coworkers follow Jesus? Because Jesus is their Lord and he deserves their worship. 
What if your boss says, you can't talk about Jesus here. You got to keep your faith. Uh, that, that, keep that out of here. That's that personal. Well, talk about him anyway. Why? Because Jesus is the Lord of your work. He's the Lord of your boss. He's the Lord of your company. Your CEO doesn't own your company. Christ is Lord of your company. And your work and your coworkers deserve to be brought underneath the Lordship of Jesus Christ. By the way, part of bringing your work under the Lordship of Jesus Christ is being a really great, really reliable, really honest, and really hard worker. The world and everything in it belongs to Christ. His truth is absolute, and his truth is meant to be proclaimed with boldness. Now, you will be mocked. Perhaps you'll be seen as hateful. You'll be called a bigot. You'll be told that you're arrogant because you claim to have the absolute truth. You may lose friends and you may lose job opportunities. Of course, we don't seek out to be called any of these things or to have any of these things happen to us. But take heart. If it does, it doesn't necessarily mean you're doing something wrong. Like I said, if you're being a jerk, yeah, you're doing something wrong. But if you're living by a biblical conscience, obeying Christ, you're not doing anything wrong. Proclaiming the gospel is about heralding the lordship of Jesus, the king of kings and lord of lords, risen from the dead, triumphing over all evil, and lovingly extending his arms out to a broken, fallen world in need of redemption. People in our lives need to be brought under the lordship of Jesus Christ because Christ deserves it, but thank God that Christ desires them. He desires to save them, to give them what, they long, what they're truly longing for. He is the only hope we have, and his gospel must be proclaimed. Now, I could, maybe you could tell, I could talk about this all morning, and I need to move on. So second, the gospel the early church proclaimed was simple. They proclaimed the gospel simply. I think a lot of Christians are afraid to share the gospel because they're afraid that they're going to get lost in all sorts of, you know, miles of theological weeds, they're afraid, you know, one of the common things I hear is, what if someone asks a question I don't know the answer to? What if someone brings something up I don't know about? They worry that they're going to get lost in all these complicated issues, and then they're not going to know what to say. But listen to Paul's words here in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but a demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And Paul wasn't proclaiming the gospel with lofty speech or wisdom. He was just telling people the simple, understandable news of what the Lord Jesus Christ came to this world and did. He was telling people the simple story about how Christ came to reconcile the world unto God. When we talk about sharing the gospel, that doesn't mean going out and being able to give a flawless defense of penal substitutionary atonement. It doesn't mean that you have to, you have to go and, and, and explain the doctrine of election to your neighbor. Sharing the gospel doesn't mean, hey, go to work tomorrow and be able to give a flawless explanation, comparing and contrasting premillennial dispensational theology and covenant theology. Doesn't mean any of that. Now, those things are good to know. I hope that 
you are growing. Like I'm a pastor and a theologian. I hope that you're growing in your faith. I hope that you're growing in your understanding of what God's word is. But I also know the gospel message is simple. What did the apostle Paul say? St. Paul said in Romans chapter 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's pretty simple. Timothy Keller said that the gospel was like like, like a pool that a toddler could wade in and an elephant could swim in. It's simple enough to explain to a five-year-old and profound enough to keep the world's foremost scholars mining its depths. The gospel is complex enough that we will spend all of eternity wrapping our minds around it, yet so simple that it can be explained in a minute. You don't have to have every answer. You just have to have the answer to the question, what must I do to be saved? The gospel, simply put, is that God created this world perfectly, without any flaws. But humanity rebelled against him, bringing the whole world under a curse of sin and corruption, bringing death into this good world that God made. Now, this sin required justice because God is holy. And the wages of sin, the Bible says, is death. But because God is infinite in his love and mercy and tenderness and compassion, he sent his one and only son to come to this world as a man to take upon himself the punishment that humanity deserved so that whosoever puts their faith and hope and trust in Christ would be saved and receive eternal life and live the life God made for you to live today. That's the gospel. That's what you need to know to share the gospel with your friends. You need to know that and talk about the way that the gospel shaped you. You don't have to know every single thing about it. You don't have to have a systematic theology memorized cover to cover. The gospel is simple. And remember, whether or not someone believes this message is not up to you. If you share the gospel with someone and they reject it, you shouldn't leave going, oh my gosh, man. If only I just said it like this. If only I'd included this point. If only I'd rephrased this better, maybe they would believe. Now, what does the Lord Jesus tell us in John chapter six? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. Our job is to proclaim the gospel. The Holy Spirit, God the Father, they do all the heavy lifting. They do the rest. Proclaim the gospel simply, the way that you know how, and let God work in the hearts of your hearers. Finally, what we can see from the early church, they proclaimed the gospel continually. Look at Acts chapter 5, verse 42. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. They did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. There's a quote falsely attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. Now, I like St. Francis too much to let any of y'all think he actually said this. He didn't say this. He would not have believed it, but people falsely attribute this quote to him. Maybe you've heard it. Preach the gospel at all times, and when necessary, use words. You ever heard that? The argument goes, just live a life of kindness and charity, and that's the only gospel message you need to preach. Just use words if they're necessary. 
they're necessary. I hope that you do live a life of kindness and charity. But words are necessary to proclaim the gospel. Without the words of the gospel, then this gospel message from this quote becomes the good news of what a great guy or gal you are. You're just super nice and everyone's like, man, that guy is so nice. I love it when he walks into a room, he lights up a room. Man, she's so sweet. She's such a servant. She does all these nice things. I just love being around her. Who's missing from this? Who's missing from this? Jesus. Guys, the gospel's not about us. The gospel is not about what great people we are. The gospel is about Christ. And as Christ's people, we live and move and have our being in him. He's the point of what this whole thing's about. We're here for him. We exist for him. If Christ has not been raised, if Christ is not Lord, then go fishing on Sunday morning. Do whatever you want. We are here to proclaim the good news that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior of this world. He is who the gospel is about. And if we are captivated with Christ, who is at the center of the gospel, then we will have a passion to share it. I'll tell you something I don't have a lot of patience for. Something I hear a lot. And I don't have patience with me either when I, when I think this. Sharing the gospel is too hard, and I just don't know how to do it, okay? But we tend to not have any issue talking about the things that we love, do we? I have absolutely no patience for someone who can say, listen, man, sharing the gospel is really, I would do it. It's just hard. I just don't know what to say. But also, I can talk about the NFL for three hours straight and tell you every stat for all my favorite players and teams for the past 30 years. Give me a break. If you can tell me about the Titans season 10 years ago, I don't want to hear that you can't memorize something out of the gospel of John or you can't articulate the gospel. What that tells me is there's not a gospel complexity problem. There's a love for the gospel problem here. Sharing the gospel is really difficult, but man, I can talk about my kids for two hours and not take a breath. Sharing the gospel is kind of hard, but man, did you hear about what Joe Biden said yesterday? Man, I got a lot of opinions about that, I'll tell you. We talk about things that we love, things that interest us. Preaching the gospel certainly can be difficult. I don't want to undermine that. But if we love Jesus, if we're captivated by him, how can we keep from talking about him? When I was a student pastor, I see teenagers do this. Well, I just don't know how to share the gospel with my friends at school. It's like, bro, when the new Avengers movie came out, I heard you like talk nonstop about it and tell me everything that you saw. You were amazed at what you saw. You were interested in it. You loved it. That's why you can talk about it. Love for Christ fuels a desire to talk about him. But it can be difficult. Sometimes evangelism doesn't go exactly how we planned for it to. I want to tell you a story. I'm going to move this aside because I thought about telling you this story this morning when I was brushing my teeth. Um... This happened several years ago. This is like a little evangelism story, and I hope, I hope that you enjoy it. It's my go-to illustration to think about evangelism becoming complicated and kind of going a little sideways. So I was on a plane. Every great evangelism story begins with a preacher on a plane. 
And so I was a student pastor at the Smyrna campus, and so I was taking a group of 17, uh, uh, not 17 year olds, maybe some were 17 year olds, I don't know why I said 17-year-olds, a group of teenagers, and, and we were going over to Brussels, Belgium for a mission trip over spring break. Now, um, this is before I knew that I was going to move to Belgium. So this is my first time going there. I was really excited. So we're sitting on this plane, and I thought that I had hit like that international flight jackpot. Have you ever taken an international flight? I was sitting on the aisle. There was no one next to me, and then there was someone at the window. So I thought, okay, open here. I'm on the aisle. This is all. I have so much room to like spread out. This is going to be awesome. When you fly to Belgium, you fly overnight. You typically leave it around five or six in the evening. You fly overnight. You're kind of flying like to a different time. I don't know if it's back or forward or forward. I can't do numbers. But you're flying overnight, and when you land in Brussels, it's going to be like 7 in the morning. So I hope that you visit our Life Point Brussels campus one day, and when you do, it would behoove you to sleep on the plane, or you'll be pretty darn miserable your first day there, as most people were. Um, so I'm sitting here, and you know how it is. You know, I have this empty seat next to me, so as people are walking by, it's kind of like, Yes. Like, like, no, I want this seat to be open. So you've seen people walk by, walk by. So not long before the, the, the door was going to close and everything's going to be cut off, I see this, this really, really, really old guy, like, making his way down. And I'm like, come on, man, there's a seat there, there's a seat there. I'm just waiting for him to stop. And suddenly, he arrives at me. And so when he walks over... He kind of looks at the little luggage compartment above the seat, then kind of looks at me, then looks it up, and he goes, um, sorry, would you mind taking my bag? I, I can't lift it up there. And so at this point, I'm like welling up with like compassion for this guy. I'm like, yeah, of course. Yeah, totally. Let me help you. And so I take it out. He's like, I'm sitting here. I was like, yeah, I figured. And so he, he goes and sits down. I get his bag up. We sit down. His name was Jim. So I start talking to Jim, just making a small talk with him. Then after about a minute after he sits down, he tells me, hey, I... Can you get my bag for me again? Yeah, yeah, okay. So I get his bag. That probably happens two or three more times. He kept forgetting stuff in his bag. It was okay. And so uh, we're doing that. I'm just trying to help him be, you know, be nice to him, whatever. Um, the plane takes off. You know, we're kind of, you know, we're hitting that 30,000 feet. The, because it's an overnight flight, they offer dinner like pretty much immediately. Once the plane gets up and settled, they offer you dinner. So like I'm talking to him, like, you know, I'm, gonna, I'm like his liaison to the, uh, to the flight attendant. Like, what do you want? You want chicken, fish? Chicken, right? Not fish, please God. Not, not fish. Um, he wants a chicken. Uh, and so when the food comes, I like get his tray down for him. I like take, he could have done all this himself, but I just want to be nice to him. I'm like unwrapping all the stuff for him, like arranging everything for getting his, making sure everything's secure and nice. I'm just trying to make sure this guy has an awesome flight. He was traveling by himself and he was just a very old man. So I was like, I want to make sure that you're good to go. And so after about an hour, he looks at me, he's like, you're so nice. You're so, why are you so nice to me? And I was like, this is it. What kind of pastor would I be if I didn't share the gospel with the person sitting next to me? And so I can't remember exactly what I said, but I, I probably gave some really profound theological answer. Uh, I'm just kidding. I, think I probably said something like, man, you know, I'm a Christian, man. I believe that, you know, the Lord tells us to love our neighbors. I want to serve you and I want to honor you. You know, you know all, that, all that. It was really great. And so I kind of try to give my, hey, I'm a Christian and... And I love Jesus, and I'd love to talk to you about it. I kind of try to give those hints. And he didn't respond to that at all. He didn't, like, he didn't acknowledge any of that at all. He kind of looks down for a minute, and he goes, so uh, where are you from? And, and we were flying out of D.C. 
And I said, oh, I'm from, I'm from Nashville. He goes, Nashville? What do you think about Obamacare? And I was like, I was like 22 at the time. I was like, Jim, I don't ever think about Obamacare ever. Uh, I was like 22. I was like, I, I, it, it lets me stay on my parents' insurance until I'm like 26. So that's nice. Relax, relax, relax. So he starts going on this whole thing about why Obamacare is the greatest piece of, you know, legislation in American history. Give me all, all his opinions about all this kind of stuff. And, but and from that, he morphs into like talking about everything you're not supposed to talk about to a stranger on a plane. Eventually, he's like, well, what do you think about gay marriage? Do you think gay marriage is okay? And I was like, all right, well, listen, man, I let the cat out of the bag. I'm a, so I'm going to talk about what the Bible says. I told him I'm a Christian. I can't, like, I can't like be all sheepish now. I got it. Okay, well, here's what the Bible says. So we start talking about that. He, he, want, he goes on abortion. He has this big, long thing about abortion. He goes on and on about all these political issues. I mean, I got people all around this plane being like, what are these two dudes? This like young, like 22-year-old guy and this like ancient dude are sitting here talking about the most complicated and controversial issues of the day. And I'm on defense. I'm not, I'm not prodding him. I'm just like trying to answer his question. I don't like arguing with strangers. So I was looking for that sort of exit ramp onto a gospel conversation, like as quickly as possible. I look around and all the teenagers who are on the trip are like laser focused in, like watching this thing happen. So finally it happens. Finally it happens. I think I got him talking about the Bible. You can imagine Jim had a lot of opinions about the Bible. Like one of the things he said was like, nowhere in the Bible, I don't know why I'm making him sound like Bernie Sanders. (laughs) He's like, nowhere in the Bible does it say that anyone would ever go to hell. That's like a lie that Christians made up. And I was like, Jim, I'll show you right now where it says that. Man, I, I'm not making this up. I wouldn't make that up. And so he's going on about all this experience he's had in the Catholic Church. And I was like, hey, man, listen, I've, I've, that's not me, doc. Uh, and so he's going on and on about all this stuff, you know, all, all, all his opinions about the Bible and stuff. And so finally, I'm able to kind of get to a point where I can lay out what the gospel is. I'll be like, well, can I tell you what I, what I believe, what I think? I'm not kidding you guys. I probably went through the gospel top to bottom like five times with this guy. He would interrupt me a lot. I, he would interject his thought. I'm like, okay, well, how about I just take it from the top again? Uh, and so we talked for so long. I kind of look around to some of the teenagers who were with me, and they're all like, like dead asleep. And I was like, oh, no. How long have I been talking to this guy? I look at my watch. We've been talking for about five hours and I thought, oh my gosh, I'm supposed to be sleeping right now. I'm going to be so sunk tomorrow. Well, this morning when I land in like a couple hours. And so I said, Jim, man, you are something else. And I literally have nothing else I could possibly say. I hope I've been clear. I need to try to get whatever sleep I can get before I land in Brussels. I'm, I'm, I'm in big trouble tomorrow. So he's like, yeah, 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 okay, okay. And so we stop. I turn on a movie, fall asleep to it. About 30 minutes later, I hear the little ding. Uh, the flight attendants are going to come around with breakfast. And it's like, you know, they're about to start their descent. So I'm like, all right, I didn't get all, like any sleep this whole flight. But you know what? Worth it. I had this great conversation with Jim. So we're going down. Breakfast comes around. What do you, you know, it, well, I wouldn't have options for breakfast. So they gave it breakfast. Put the tray down, arrange his stuff for him, try to do all that, all, all that stuff, be nice to him. 
And then the plane lands and we're kind of, you know how when, when the plane's at, at the gate and everyone stands up on the plane, it's like you think that standing up is gonna like get you out faster. You know what I'm talking about? And every time you're about to land, you're like, I'm not gonna do it. I'm not gonna do it this time because I'm just gonna sit. I'm gonna sit and be comfortable and wait until it's my time to, time to get off the plane. I'm not gonna stand. Then once it, it lands, you're like, ah, I should probably stand. I, you're probably gonna get me off this plane like one, one minute faster. And so plane lands, I get up, get his bag out of the compartment before and give it to him. And so we're all just kind of standing there with our bags in our hands, waiting for the, you know, waiting to get off the plane. And I look at Jim, I say, Jim, I really appreciate our conversation last night. Th- thank, you for, thank you for being willing to talk to me. I mean, we, t- we covered a lot of stuff. I, I really appreciate you being willing to listen and, and talk. I really appreciate that. And he goes, yeah, yeah. So, um, where are you from? And I said, Nashville, Jim. I'm from Nashville. And he goes, Nashville? What do you think about Obamacare? (laughs) I was like, I don't think about Obamacare, Jim. Don't you remember? I just said this to you. I don't think about it. I don't have an opinion, and I know that you like it. (laughs) Yeah, he lost the whole thing. This, it's like men in black. Lost the whole thing. And the saddest part is, what is this guy doing on an international flight? He told me he was on his way to Africa. I'm like, bro, do you know where you are? Does your family know where you are? Jim disappeared after that. He told me he was an economist heading to Africa. I hope that he did, had a great time there. I hope he made it there. <laughs> The point of me sharing this story, by the way, that happened years ago. I've never, I've never put that s- story into a sermon until today. You know, sometimes things happen to you. RC will tell you this. Sometimes things happen to you when you're preaching. You're like, oh, dude, that. I'm putting that in my back pocket for a sermon later. Today is the first time I was able to bring it out. <laughs> sharing the gospel is not always easy. It's not always smooth. It's not always convenient. But this is why our past few sermons are so important. Effectively proclaiming the gospel is contingent upon the presence and power of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. It, it requires a commitment to the word of God because faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Prayer fuels our evangelism. It gives power. It strengthens us. Our, the community that we surround ourselves with uh, should encourage us and hold us accountable uh, uh, to sharing the gospel. It's so important that we grasp this. Friends, the world we live in is broken and it's falling apart fast. But there's only one way that it could be redeemed, and that is through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to contend for the gospel and fight against the schemes of the devil, it's not going to come through owning the libs on Facebook. It's not going to be by giving your neighbor a silent treatment, the silent treatment because they have a MAGA flag on their front, on their, on their front porch. It's not going to come through rage-watching Tucker Carlson every night. It's going to come through the triumphant spread of the good news. The gospel is good news. It's not bad news from angry people. It's good news from joyful people. Christianity is news of freedom for sinners. It is news of hope for the brokenhearted. It is news of victory for the failure. And as Christ's people, we cannot hold back from proclaiming Christ's message to all of Christ's world. So I want to close with a challenge. I know we have a lot of guests in here today, but I want to speak directly to LifePoint people for a minute. I know that I'm new. 
ish around here. But I, I wanted to kind of give a challenging word to us today. I had to do it sometime. I would hope that being new gives me, gives me like a fresh perspective on our church, some, some, some new eyes kind of looking at this place. One of the greatest things about LifePoint Stewart's Creek is that we have a very, very, very close community. It is no secret that the people of LifePoint Stewart's Creek love each other. I knew that when I was at the Smyrna campus. I knew that across the Atlantic. The people of LifePoint Stewart's Creek really love each other. And they're very close to each other. Our life group's ministry is incredibly healthy. Our inv- the involvement we have in things like discipleship groups and sent school is unbelievable. Truly, I would have never guessed we'd have the percentage of our people involved in discipleship groups that meet weekly that we do. It's incredible. The close, uh, however, however, this great strength that we have can quickly become a weakness if we're not careful. The closeness of our body can quickly turn into a closed offness to the rest of the world if we don't pay attention. We can become so preoccupied with sharing life with each other, which is great, which we should do, that we neglect to live sent in our community. The Christian life is meant to be shared. Shared with other Christians, a biblical community, like we said last week. And it's meant to be shared with a lost world through bold gospel proclamation. My prayer for this church is not necessarily that we would grow closer to each other. Of course, I always pray for unity, and, but I think that we got the close-knit family thing down. I think we do it pretty well. My prayer is that we would be a people whose communion with each other overflows into passionate, prayerful, and purposeful gospel growth here in our community. I want to see more life groups have to split because they're growing with new converts and new disciples. Rather than life groups being, but these are all my friends. I want to hang out with them every week. I would love to see us be compelled by a greater cause and grow, even if it means splitting up some great thing that we got going. I want the parking lot to get annoyingly crowded again. I want to see us not be a people who huddle up with, each, with our friends out in the lobby, but actively seek out new people and guests to try to make them feel welcome. I want to see you walk in these doors with your neighbors, with your coworkers. I want to hear life groups and D groups encouraging one another and challenging one another about sharing your faith. The way that we'll know that our community is actually growing in our faith and in our love for Christ is that we're growing in our influence and in our reach with the gospel into our community. Like I said, it's hard to stay quiet about the things that we love. It's hard not to talk about the things that are always on our minds. Look around you when you leave. All this land, what is it becoming? Houses, neighborhoods. I don't think they're going to be putting a Kmart across the street anytime soon. These are neighborhoods. New people, souls, created in God's image, created by God to love him and enjoy him forever. People whose hearts are restless until they find their rest in Christ. What are we gonna do? Hold up in here and hope they come to us? Or are we gonna live since and be serious about proclaiming the lordship of Jesus Christ in our neighborhoods, in our homes, and amongst the new people around us? Serving them, loving them, so that we can lead them to the cross 
where we see the greatest demonstration of servitude and love. They won't know Jesus unless his people tell them, which is good because our church is about to be the church, like the neighborhood church for like 15 different neighborhoods. So Creek family, let's passionately, boldly, simply, and continually proclaim the gospel to this world so that the glory of Christ would radiate from this building into the homes of thousands of families right now and right here in our community. If you don't know Christ, I would implore you, come speak to me or one of our staff members or, or one of our members. Christ is the only hope you have for your life. All the emptiness and despair and misery in this world, skyrocketing rates of depression, anxiety, suicide, angst, malaise. It's because we've abandoned the king. We've turned away from truth. We bought into a lie. We're trying to live a way that God didn't make us to live and we're miserable. And we keep taking poison thinking it's gonna be the thing that will heal us. Come to Christ. Bend your knee to him. And know flourishing and joy, the kind that God created you to know. Your heart will be restless until it finds its rest in your God. We're over a little bit. Tis the fate of the third service. But I want us to do a prayer time, so I'm going to invite Josh to come out. And I, wanna, I want us to pray for a couple things. Uh, when I give this signal, if you're a deacon, not yet, but in a moment, if you're a deacon, I would like for you to stand up, or if you're staff, I want you to stand up and head to the back of the room. We're going to have just some prayer time. And there's three things I want us to pray for. One, which, look, here are three things you can pray for. Maybe, pray for, maybe you get stuck on one of them. I don't know. I think a prayer of repentance could be in order. Refusing to share the gospel is an obedience issue. Christ commanded us to do that. And if I could put it in the harshest terms I could put it in, because I think this is true, a refusal of a Christian to evangelize and share the gospel, to proclaim the gospel, is in effect to say to the Lord Jesus, you don't deserve to be worshipped. You don't deserve to be called Lord by the people you have purchased for yourself. At the core, that's what a refusal to evangelize is, which is why it's a sin issue. It's something we need to pray and ask the Lord's forgiveness and help. Thank God that he's not angry at you if you've never shared the gospel and he wants to help you, which is why I want you to also pray for your one, the person in your life who you want to see come to know Christ the specific person by name, I want you to pray for them. And three, ask the Holy Spirit to give you boldness, to open up a door and to give you the courage to seize the opportunity. So deacons, would, if you have any deacons in here, do we have any deacons in here? Would you stand up? Are literally all of our deacons? Okay, we have a couple. I was like, no deacons in here? We have a couple staff people in the back. So where you are, why don't we pray for those things? And we're gonna take about a minute to do that. If you want someone to pray for you or with you, you go back in the back and see someone, but let's take a moment to do that now.
Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on us. We confess that we have not loved you as we ought. We have done things that we ought not to do, and we have not done things which we ought to do. And we know that apart from you, there is no health in us. So we ask you to have mercy on us for neglecting to do the things you've called us to do, namely, proclaim the gospel, be serious about your lordship and supremacy over all things. Forgive us for this. We are so thankful that you don't harbor resentment toward us. You're not up in heaven with your arms folded, angry at us. But you desire to restore us and help us do and be what you've called us to do and be. Lord, I pray, Father, I pray for the people who were just prayed for by our congregation. Maybe some of those people are in this room. Father, I ask that you would draw them unto your son. Open their eyes to see their sin, their need for a savior, and the joy of following Jesus that is available to them right now. Holy Spirit, the Lord Jesus told us that you were our helper, that you would help us, you'd bring to remembrance, bring to our minds what we need to say. Help us share the gospel. Help us proclaim the gospel. Help us be people who are serious about the glory of Christ in our communities and in our world. And we say all these things in the name of Jesus.